Hi, and welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. I'm your host, Maduna Christian, joined again this week by Edward Ned Russell as we discuss yet again the pilot shortage in the U.S., the European Big Three's earnings, and what's going on in Brazil. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Hey there, Ned. How are you? Hey, Madhu. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I have pilots on the ni- mind, Ned. Pilots on my mind. <laughs> Don't we all? So for those of us who, those of you who have been listening to us for a while or reading our coverage or really have any interest in the airline industry at all, you'll probably know there is a pilot shortage in the U.S., or at least some say there's a pilot shortage. I'd say most say there's a pilot shortage. Right. I mean, the main union does not. And certain, you know, Ted Christie at Spirit says there's no pilot shortage. And for his airline, for his airline and United says it can get all the pilots it needs. Southwest says it has all the pilots it needs. It just can't train them fast enough. But let's focus today's conversation on those airlines that say they're not getting enough pilots. And those primarily the regional airlines with JetBlue and Alaska to some degree. Right, exactly. And what is unusual this time around, I mean, I've been covering this pilot shortage since 2009, since the 1500-hour rule was going into... This that went route. to effect 2013, Madhu. Right, but since 2009, when the Colgan Air crash fostered all these changes... Let me finish my thoughts, Ned, before you interrupt. <laughs> so it, um, the, the backstory is in 2009, there was a, a regional air accident out in upstate New York that was... The NTSB determined was partially caused by pilot fatigue, and that fostered change in Congress to mandate a, eventually by 2013 a 1,500-hour threshold for commercial pilots to have in order to operate a commercial air, aircraft. Though I would love to at some point go back and look at how they thought increasing the number of hours required addresses pilot fatigue, but that's another question. Well, there are other facets to that as well about like domiciles and commuting time. And so that played into it. And that was that was a factor in the coal. Those two things were factors in the Colgan air crash. Um, so it, it's large. I mean, the shorthand is 1500 hour rules, but there are a lot of regulations that came in around it. Um, so the... Um, so this has been, you know, for for almost 10 years now, the the U.S. industry has warned of a looming pilot shortage, and the pandemic has made that actually happen. It's no longer looming, it's here. So, um, Ned, I mean, you you um, covered a small regional this week, uh, Southern, Southern, correct me on the name, fill in the Southern name. Southern Airways Express. Right. And what did they have to say about the, the pilot shortage, Ned? So they actually said that they don't have a pilot shortage. Uh, oh. They have more than enough pilots. Their their gating issue is our aircraft. But they are a unique operator. They are Part 135, which in the U.S. is a uh, different classification from your standard commercial airline, which is Part 121. So they are able to get pilots at fewer hours, generally known as uh, 500 hours, I believe. Mm-hmm. So 1,500-hour rule doesn't apply. But, you know, I I spoke to them and they they credit their cadet program, which is uh, pilots come in and they fly in the right seat as the first officer for uh, from 500 hours to 1200 hours. And then they move to the left seat and they fly for another 600 hours until they get to 1800 and then they move on to Sky West. Mm -hmm. So it's a pathway. But when they're flying in the left seat, they're training the next first officer in the right seat and uh, Southern Airways CEO Stan Little credits this for for really they have this creation pipeline that is really robust and, and anyone who does that is guaranteed a job at a uh, Sky West when they hit 1800 hours if they so desire and so he's he really 
credits that program. There's questions as to why uh, this program, this cadet program is working for Southern Airways and not for, for example, Cape Air and Republic, which have a similar program called the Lift Academy, where uh, new hires at Republic go to Cape Air and work in the right seat. And But the thing is, is Republic and Cape Air both say they face a shortage. So I spoke to a, a professor at Emory-Riddle University down in, in Florida, which is a, a big pilot training school. And you know, he said it's probably really, I mean, they they said the creation, it probably works really well, but also um, Southern Airways probably just got in at the right time. There's a lot yeah. of different factors that, that could just make the difference of, of having a steady supply. Right. Now, Southern, I mean, you know, what you said is really interesting, Ned, because Southern Airways Express is a very small um feeder to the regionals, really. When we go the next tier up, you have that's where we're starting to see a lot of difficulties, the SkyWest, Mesa's, Republics, etc. Because what they're what's you know, it's always been a thing, right, Ned, that the um the mainline carriers take talent from the regionals after a certain amount of time and certain amount of training. The a pilot can apply for a job at a mainline carrier. But now that that according to Mesa CEO Jonathan Ornstein, that's just happening a lot faster than it used to. So mainline carriers are are kind of going even around the regionals and hiring pilots straight out of school, which That's is right. which is causing big problems for the regional um, for regional lift. That's that's right. And you, so you mentioned Mesa. You know, Jonathan Ornstein blames the fifteen hundred hour rule directly for for those issues. And Republic Airways also has has issues with that, and they've applied for a waiver. Which, if if it was granted, and and the general consensus is it probably won't be means that they could begin, uh, pilots could begin flying commercial jets at 750 hours. Um, but yeah, is there are some real issues in the, in the regional space. Yeah, the, I mean, the technical term of what's going to happen in, um, in the federal dockets is uh, a bleep storm. I'm not going to curse. But, but you know as soon as that hits the federal register, they're going to be, and the public comment period is open, um, there will be basically a war of words in the dockets, and a lot of lawyers are going to be spending a lot of time filing either why there should be a waiver granted for 750 hours or why this is the worst thing ever and planes will be flying out of, out of the, falling out of the sky. So brace yourselves, everyone. It's going to be really interesting soon. Exactly. And we know, for one, Alpha is going to be on the side of the 1,500-hour <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to have, it's going to be interesting to see who weighs in backing Republic. It's, it's, don't expect any decision, any move on this anytime soon. And like Madhu said, it's going to be a bleep war. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the thing is though, um, the optics of changing this are really, really challenging because just recently some coal, um, family members of Colgan air victims, um, were went before Congress and and affirmed their support for the fifteen hundred hour rule and said how how it actually does make aviation safer and you know the the optics of of um, a victim's family member sort of getting emotional um, in front of a TV camera it really makes it hard for Congress to change that or modify that in any way so I I. I'm not really positive on Republic's chances. It's a shot across the bow, and let's see what happens. But, um, but I'm not really positive on it. 
Um, now, no, I'm not either. And and speaking to you talk you you touched on the family aspect. The other thing is is there has not been a fatal crash, commercial airline crash in the U.S. since Golden Air. Yeah. So, well, of a U.S. airline, asterisk, no. I just thought of Asiana, but um, exactly. of a U.S. airline in the U.S. in that period. So, or right. of any U.S. airline, actually, but, anywhere, I think. But then to, to play the other side of it, I mean, Jonathan Ornstein, the CEO of Mesa, has said before and said again just yesterday, this um, on Monday, May 9th, that, um, that you know, Lots of pilots with far fewer hours than 1,500 fly into the U.S. And what he meant is, you know, um, pilots that are um, licensed abroad may not need to meet that 1,500-hour threshold in their home countries, but they're perfectly, you know, the FAA has no problem with them flying, uh, landing a flight at JFK. So, um, you know, that, that is an interesting point and one that's really... I don't know how, like, what the counter to that is, Ned. Yeah, I don't know. And I know when I spoke to Cape Air CEO Linda Markham, she's not as at all as firm. She she doesn't ask for any repeal of the fifteen hundred hour rule, but she did say that there that is a um that that is uh, an interesting situation when you have a pilot with say seven hundred hours flying into JFK and uh, you know no you know the flying a triple seven and a Cape Air Cessna has to have at least 1500. So right. And uh, <laughs> you know, Ornstein also raised some in his, in his usual outspoken manner, said, uh, raised another interesting point. He said, you know, what's important to, to a commercial pilot is being trained in the type of aircraft that they, they will operate. So getting, getting their hours in say a, you know, um, an, an e-jet, that they will be operating for a regional rather than just, as he put it, flying 1500 hours in circles around over the Pacific and, and a Cessna. So, I mean, he does kind of have a point there, but once again, I mean, like I said, the, the, this is really going to be hard for Congress to change, to go back on. It's very, the optics are terrible. The uproar will be terrible. There'll be like contentious hearings in Congress. I don't, I don't, I don't see it happening. I think once you establish a rule like that, it's hard to walk back. That's right. I don't think the rule is going to change, but I, I did. I do think that there's going to be maybe something like uh, what what Linda Market Cape Air said is some kind of training credits that might reduce the hour uh-huh. requirement. It's not going to be an exemption, but it's you know for people that go through accredited uh, training programs are able to get some of those hours credited back to them. I don't know how much relief that would provide. If it's going to be like fifty hours, if it's going to be two hundred hours, I don't know. But I think we might see something like that, considering the pressure on the pilot staffing situation. Right. Right. That, that it could be, it, yeah, it could be any of those things or could also be raising the pilot retirement age from 65 to 67. Oh, don't get that started with Alpa. I think uh, they, <laughs> that's, that's not a, uh, not something anyone else likes. So, anyway. right. <laughs> but you know, it is an option. So that we will see. All right. Let's squeeze in a quick break here, Ned. And we're back. It's Madhuni Christian with Ned Russell talking everything airlines. So, Ned, the other kind of big thing that happened in the last week was the big three European airlines, Air France, KLM, um, Lufthansa Group, and um, IAG, all reported their earnings. And um, you covered most of those. What, what are they thinking about the summer? So they are all bullish about demand this summer, uh, pretty much across the board. They do not see an impact from the war in Ukraine. They don't see a major impact from inflation or high fuel prices. The demand is strong and it's getting stronger. And they're all preparing for for a, a really, you know, 
busy summer. Uh, they're flying more than they had planned at the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. or at least scheduled to fly. And that's, I mean, that's the good side of the story, though. There is a, a caveat to that. And that's uh, across the board. They have warned of staffing. Yeah. <laughs> being a situation, not necessarily with the airlines themselves. Lufthansa Group CEO Carson Spohr was very clear about that. They have no staffing issues at Lufthansa. But in Europe, he cited airport staffing, including security queues, uh, air traffic control staffing, and then uh, ground staffing, like catering and stuff, mm-hmm. as being choke points for them. And we've we've seen a little bit of this when uh, in the UK in April. There were some major snafus when airports simply didn't have enough... Uh, or depending on who you ask, airports didn't have have enough or understaffed purposely. Um, and that created huge, huge bottlenecks and long delays. So it's uh, it's going to be an interesting summer in Europe. Yeah, well, it's a tight labor market. I mean, this is this the big three are, in Europe are kind of, um, in a way, echoing what their counterparts in the U.S. said. And it's not so much the pilots and flight attendants they're struggling with, but um, but below the wing and ground staff. Right. You know, it's, IAG really took London Heathrow to task for <laughs> for the situation. You and know, why they, not? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, Heathrow is a private concessionaire operating the airport, but they, you know, IAG said they've contacted the UK Civil Aviation Authority to to raise concerns about level of staffing for, for the summer. But, I mean, there's not much that they can really do at this point. You know, I, I anything that goes through a, a you know, regulator is going to take months to rectify and the summer is going to be here in about a month (laughs) so what has british airways done they've cut their schedule by up to 10 percent through october as a result just to to mitigate things which is huge considering they are also expecting a lot of demand that's huge but that should do good things for their yields just like it's doing good things for the yields here absolutely as someone who has recently bought some intra-europe tickets from london for the summer uh fares are definitely high yeah yeah, the the uh, the days of those uh, those pandemic era days of a round trip ticket to London being three hundred dollars from the West Coast those are long gone. Oh yes, absolutely. So the, I mean, the story is generally positive in Europe. Uh, everyone's looking forward to to busy full planes, uh, busy flights. You know, it's yeah, it's just we have to keep an eye on this staffing situation. Yeah, for sure. And on new variants, of course. Uh, new variants, of course. Though it seems like there's less and less, I mean, and this is true here in the U.S., that there is less and less concern amongst the public about new variants, um, for better or worse. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we've all got pandemic f- fatigue, and there's um, there's just a growing sense that it's an endemic disease. But, um, but at the same time, you know, if you listen to ep- epidemiologists and virologists, um, Maybe we're being a little, we're spiking the football a little bit. Absolutely. And that, you know, it's, 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 I, I hear you and I, I read what those epidemiologists are saying, but I, I do really wonder how much the general public is taking that into account at this point. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think they are. I, I, I think, you know, they are, they're keeping an eye on hot spots. Like people are keeping an eye on where, where numbers are high and probably avoiding those areas. But, but, uh, the pandemic is over as far as the public is concerned, that's for sure. That is right. And people are ready to travel this summer, as the European Big Three are saying. For one, oh, one interesting point is the transatlantic is going to be booming this yeah. summer. And now we we predicted this months ago. We we said this likely 20, summer 2022 is going to be, you know, just, you know, overwhelmed, bubbling over. In this, and that's true. Um, 
all of the big European carriers have pivoted capacity to the transatlantic because Asia remains mostly mm-hmm. closed. And I want to say all or almost all of them are going to be flying 2019 levels of capacity or more this summer uh, mm-hmm. to North America. So it's it's going to be busy. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Good times. Now, another place that's busy moving further south and west from, from Europe is uh, is Brazil. Um, that uh market is being is doing gangbusters right now isn't it it really is so i had the chance to listen to azul's earnings on may 9th and you know they are the first carry that i've heard that has essentially put the pandemic behind them they Mm. they said that they are seeing new higher levels of demand that are not that cliche pent-up demand but just the new normal and it's it's great for them, especially because there's a lot of oil and gas and agribusiness demand in Brazil. They are a big commodity export country, and it's it's great for Azul's business. Now, the caveat is is Azul is not focused on the the triangle in Brazil, Rio, Sao Paulo, and Brasilia. So they are outperforming some other peers, Gol and Latam. Uh, but Gol and Latam are expected to catch up as the the country surges ahead. Yeah, if you look at Brazil, um, not Brazil's, Azul's route map, it really does reach far pockets of the country. And as you mentioned, I mean, the war in Ukraine has made um, commodity prices spike. And um, oil and gas is is a big part of Brazil's economy and a growing part of Brazil, of Brazil's economy. And Azul said throughout the pandemic that that um, energy, was, was, ener- travel by, pe- by folks in the energy industry is really going remain strong. So that's not a surprise. Agribusiness, I mean, with 30% of the world's wheat off the market, essentially, from Russia and Ukraine, um, the exports from, from Brazil become even more valuable. So, um, and, and, you know, once again, Ned, we're talking about a country with poor surface transit. So, um, so that's right. You can't, you can't drive across Brazil like you can drive across the U.S. easily. I remember there was a good Washington Post story on this highway through the Amazon that, is, you know, I mean, it's impassable some of the years, yeah. but it's the only route that connects, I want to say, some of the some major cities and you know, cities of more than a million people in the Amazon to the rest uh-huh. of Brazil. And it's literally impassable part of the year. Right. And and enter Azul. <laughs> so it's it's got a ready made market and one that's remained strong. And the other thing to remember is that Brazil didn't really ever close. Um, it. Remain. I mean, there were virtually no lockdowns in Brazil, and the vaccination rate was pretty high. Once I got off to a slow start, but it was about ninety percent by last October, so uh, outstripping most OECD countries. So, um, you know, this is a, a population that wants to travel, and a couple of very big industries that need to travel. So it's that's great. Right. For, great for Azul. That's right. Yeah, and and as Azul said, agribusiness, uh, oil and gas are. are Biz corporate demand is above 2019, and, and the sectors that they have yet to see fully recover are financing government. And but again, those aren't Azul's main main uh, sources of income. So it, it's it's really interesting to listen to a call where where someone is quite so you know bullish as as Azul is at this point. I mean, it's it's been pandemic earnings calls for for going on two years now, and then to finally get one that's basically putting the the virus in you know in the rearview mirror. 
It's kind uh, of refreshing. That <laughs> is kind of refreshing. I mean, well, let's look at one little side note, though, Ned. There's, there has been one airline that has con- been consistently profitable throughout the pandemic, and that's Korean. That is <laughs> right. Though, on the back of their cargo business and not necessarily for passenger demand. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. we, you know, just for you listeners, Ned and I have joked before, the Korean basically could be a very profitable airline and not fly a single passenger ever again. Um, it's, it's, it's cargo revenues were like, three quarters of its earnings in the last um in the last uh last quarter and once again fueled it to profits so i mean that's that's another doesn't have an earnings call so we don't get to listen to them on a quarterly basis but but that's a that's another i think interesting trend line from this pandemic is that airlines that could really did diversify away from passengers and probably will stay there um, and Azul is a good example of that too. Yeah. They are they're they are growing their logistics business, which we've talked about in the past, and it's growing gangbusters. It's still a fraction of their business compared to passenger, but revenues are are more than are up. I want to say it was three times compared mm-hmm. to 2019 in the first quarter, which is massive. But it's still yeah. a fraction compared to passenger. But they're right. they're definitely growing it. Yeah, and so is gold. So it's um, it's uh, an interesting little side business, a silver lining that came out of this pandemic. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's leave it there, Ned. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening to us again this week, and we will catch you next week. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Should you have comments or questions, drop editor Madhu Unikrishnan a note at mu at skiff.com. Of course, check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week. 